Welcome to part two of episode one, the mental health crisis response. We will finish Carlos' interview and we will feature a discussion between Anjali and me about what we have just learned as well as how all of this impacts our clinical education. What would your ideal response to mental health crisis look like? And how is it different from what's happening? So what we want and what we want past is our pilot project. Maybe we'll pick different precincts from the city and see how it goes. Where you have a private EMT and a pure de-escalator to work in neighborhoods where there's high concentrations of crisis calls. We want the money to flow from a government agency to the neighborhood group, just like the wiper clinic did in Eugene. But we don't want the police involved in this. We want the EMTs and the peers to take calls from private hotline. If the police want to refer cases to them, that's fine. And we do have limited involvement in that the mental health team would have a police radio. So if the calls get to them and they feel they need the police, they can call the police right away. The team would go and try to resolve the situation at the scene, give the person resources, sit with them, help them to calm down. If they can, then they may transport the person to like a respite center or someplace other than a hospital. That's really our goal is to start this pilot project. And once it started, I think people will see this is the answer. Give people their lives back. And as it exists now, even if you call New York City well, which is the hotline for mental health concerns, the only possible thing you can call for is a mobile crisis team which has like seven people on it and is still scary. And the mobile crisis team takes about two days. So it's not an urgent care. There's still seven people coming to your door. They're still based in the medical model. You know, it's just not a good solution. We don't have a good program up and running now. And that's why we really don't understand why the mayor didn't just say, okay, we're going to start looking at your pilot, which I mean, hundreds of participants want and 85 organizations want. I don't understand why the mayor didn't just say, let's try it out. So one of the things that you're saying here about this like kind of institutional model is in total contrast to what you're describing as the peer model. What do you see as the harm of leaving out people with lived experiences of mental health crises from these conversations? So the, the what you're going to leave out and what you said is it's going to be a medical model. It's going to be taking people to the hospital where they'll get heavily medicated and they'll come out then they'll not want to be on the medication. Whereas if you had a pure model, you would rebuild the person's whole life. You would say, you're in crisis now. We're going to help you get out of crisis. We don't care if it takes half an hour. Rather than just take them away from their home and put them in a hospital, they're going to come back without any additional care that they had before. One of the things this is making me think about is like, as medical students, there's like a little bit of a shift and we're starting to talk about the social determinants of health and we're starting to talk about connecting not just a medical model, but connecting people to community resources. But one of the things you're kind of making me think about is that no physician is going to spend that time. I mean, no matter how much training you get in what community resources are accessible, you are never going to be able to put yourself in that space and say, this whole life needs to be turned around. And I know that because I have had this experience and I know what it's going to take. One thing about cahoots, I mean, it may not be the ideal model for New York City, but I think it's a relatively good model, is that they can spend an hour to two hours with a person. Just like you said, a doctor doesn't have two hours to look up art programs on the internet with a person in crisis. But hopefully these teams of peers and EMTs, when we do get the funding, well, first of all, they won't need that amount of time because they'll know the resources in the community. They'll be from that community. 
But even if they're not from that community, they'll know the organizations to look up and they'll give the person a plan of action of how they're going to go about their day. It's very important to get connected up to people in a community when you're living with a mental health concern. So you need someone there who's like a peer who's at your level who can tell you, hey, you know, you look really, really hepped up and, and manic or, hey, are you thinking okay? Do you want to talk to me about something? Hey, are you feeling really sad? Are you thinking about suicide right now? I know that really sounds brutal. And there's a lot of other things that go on in the mental health community. We have our mental health film fest, community access. There are Christmas dinners. There are group discussions about lighter stuff. But you need that sense of community. It's very important when you have a mental health concern. So just like doctors might not be able to do both the communication and the connecting of resources, police, obviously, as you're saying, can't be trained to know exactly what it is going to take to de-escalate someone. And a peer might be able to do that. Can you describe a little bit what it might look like for a peer to de-escalate someone in crisis? Yeah, so I think one of the big cases, I think, was Miguel Richards, who was killed, and he was 10 feet away from the police. His TV was on, and they could have said to him, hey, man, I heard your neighbor called. My name is Bob. I live with mental health concerns. I've had some real problems with my neighbors. I see you watching someone on TV. What are you watching? I see that picture over there. Is that your niece? Do you have a good relationship with her? What's going on? What brought you here? What do you do? Hey, man, can I leave this bottle of water here on the floor? You want a snack? You want a sandwich? That's what the escalation is. So I want to transition a little bit. I think as students in medical school, we're really, really focused on this medical model. And maybe it's expanding a little bit to talk about what people might need beyond medical treatments to improve their health, both physical and mental health. But I think for medical students, we're still very much in thinking about people with mental health conditions really needing medication. And we see people, for example, coming into the ED, they're with a bunch of police, they're handcuffed to their stretcher, they're in crisis, and they're in more crisis, as you're saying, because there's, you know, 20 people surrounding them trying to medicate them and, and they're freaking out. At that point, maybe medication is all that could be done, but we have very few resources to think about what could be done way before that. So I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you feel like sometimes psychiatric hospitalization or medications might not be helpful and what other models might be. So, I mean, I want to start with, I recognize that there are some situations where a person might need a hospitalization, but the hospitals are just going to medicate the person and are not going to focus on the whole life of the person, I guess, because the doctors don't have time. But you can't expect someone to just get out the hospital and take these medications that dull their brain and make them drool sometimes and just go on SSI and that's it. Your life is over now. That's no, no one's going to do that. In terms of the solutions, community is very, very important. But in addition, I mean, I take medication, but it's not everything. Like I have a job that I love. So I am so, so lucky. Not everybody gets that, but there are people who they do like if they're manic one night, they'll stay up and they'll do paintings all night. I mean, those paintings can sell for like $300. But you know, people can be productive in ways other than just working. If you want to work, go back to work. That's great. If you don't, get into an art program, get into a clubhouse where you can be part of a whole community of a lot of people like Fountain House. Maybe you want to go back to school. Maybe you never got that GED or the college education. Maybe you want to reconnect with a, you know, a son or a daughter who you lost due to the way you were when you were, you were sick early on. 
In terms of healthcare, other than hospitalization healthcare, you know, there's something called urgent care centers like CityMD, but we don't have mental health urgent care centers. Now, why don't we have like 24 hour seven mental health urgent care centers instead of spending the money to go to the hospitalization where you're going to wait for 25 hours and then you're going to be released in 24 hours? Why don't you go to like an urgent CityMD? The structures are in place. All we need is a therapist, a doctor, a peer. You need to talk to someone for an hour. You need to sit somewhere for an hour. You sit, you talk to them, maybe get medication, maybe you don't. But there has to be a better approach than just if there's, you know, in an emergency call 911, which is to transport you to a hospital in the best case. Why I keep repeating this urgent care centers with people with mental health concern, it is so, so inexpensive. You have centers across the city, the city MD centers, and they're closed. So why don't you just open them up after hours? You have the physical space. All you need is a little staff. And the reason I say this is because I had a case recently, a friend of mine, a colleague, her friend, who's like her mother's age, has a son, an adult son, and she really needed to get him to go to the hospital. And she would not call 911 because she's Caribbean and she's afraid he'll get killed. So it took like a month of my colleague talking to this lady's son to convince him to go to a hospital. What if there was an urgent care center, brightly colored, really pretty, kind of nice place you can get in and out in an hour? Don't you think he would have gone to that much easier than wait till it's a crisis? So we, we need some help in the healthcare world. We need some funding. So one of the problems right now, the, the only model we have really is like psychiatric emergency room. But I guess the problem is that they're attached to hospitals. So if you go there they may hospitalize you against your will. And that may itself prevent people from deciding to go there and get help. That prevents people from going there. It prevents family members from calling. If people have had a bad experience, like psychiatric hospitals are often traumatizing to the person, but the family member as well sees them and sees what's happening. And you don't want to call and you don't want to get them there. And if you're the person who's a mental health recipient, I've heard one out of about 2000 people who like the hospital. Everyone else, it's like something happens to you, you know, they, they take your clothes away. It's not like you have a TV in your room. You know what I mean? You're in with four other people. You don't have your cell phone. Sometimes the nurses can be pretty mean. Uh, the hospital doctors don't have much time. You know, you're given medication in a higher amount. So you're on such a high medication doses. And, you know, it's mixed women and men. And there's always problems with having adult people around with not much clothes on. And, you know, it's, it's just not safe. And it, the way you're treated, you're not treated with dignity and respect. Had I been that sick and someone told me I could have walked into a city urgent mental health care center, I would have gone in. But I would not have gone into the hospital because I had been in the hospital before. So that's, I mean, if you can want to keep clinics open after hours, you'd have to change some regulations that work too, you know. But often I get calls from people who like, they don't have enough medication or they're not feeling well. Right now we have respite centers. They have a very small amount of respite centers where a person can go in crisis, but there's only very few spaces. There's, we don't have the alternatives to hospitals and hospitals are scary to people with mental health concerns. I think just the way that it's framed to us as students is actually that people in crisis don't know that they need help. And that's totally contrary to what you're saying. You're saying people know they need help, but they don't want to get it from a place that's going to feel like being in a prison or that's going to deprive them of their feeling of freedom. Or There was a point when I was in a manic state when I thought everything I think was okay, but I didn't think I needed medication. So there is some of that. 
but there's the vast majority of the situation is, you know, that's interval one, go to interval zero. If there was a time earlier on when I could have gotten healthcare from a peer or someone who was compassionate and connect me up to resources, my life would have turned around earlier. As soon as I was in a room with 30 other people who were peers, even though we were working part-time, I already had a built-in support network from you know day one of that training. One of the things I had to do was run groups. And in one group, I was co-running a group and it was so calm, I fell asleep. And that was like, no big deal. Like I had no worries that that other co-facilitator was going to report me. But I was, you know, you don't have to find a community through work. You can find a community through a clubhouse, through an art space. You have to find something to do during your day. You can't sit around and watch TV all day. It's not a recipe for a successful life. I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about respite centers and what those look like as alternatives to... Cool. I love the respite centers. So respite centers are more expensive. The reason why I love these like urgent care centers, like renting out city MDM at night to a doctor and a therapist, it's because it's so cheap. You have the land. You have all the structure. All you need is some salary money. Respite centers are a little more expensive because you have to take over a building, right? A respite center is a place where a person can go in crisis and they get their own room. They get a key to their room, unlike a hospital. They can come and go. If they want to drop off their kids to school or talk to their kids after school and then come back to the respite center, that's fine. Unfortunately, it doesn't get much funding, so stays are only a week to two weeks. There's 24-hour support. There's more than a one-to-one ratio of staff to the people there. There's like eight people in our respite center community access. Most of the people are peers who were well-trained in crisis de-escalization. The goal of the respite is not necessarily to medicate you, but rather to find out what went wrong in your life that brought you into this crisis. Let's create a crisis plan and let's stop this crisis right now. But let's plan for the future so that If you find yourself getting into a crisis, you know what to do. People love the respite center. There aren't enough of them. There's very few. I think there's eight across the city. And some have as few as like four beds. Because you have to give someone a room. And that requires you to take over a physical property. I know community access does a lot um, around housing. I'm wondering how you see housing as, as part of the project to prevent police encounters for people in crisis. So I just want to say this, it's not the whole solution. It really isn't. Every one of these things are a step in a solution. You need urgent care, you need respite, you need clubhouses, you need clinics to please take people on emergency basis, which they don't for therapy clinics. We all have to do a a better job. But in terms of housing, think of it, you're on the street, you're homeless, you're trying to take your medication and keep your keep your papers and take your medications. That's very, very hard. If you have a place to stay that's your home when you're not feeling well, you can just lay down in bed for a week. No one's going to prevent you from doing that. Also, it's not only having a place that's your own where no one can hurt you or harm you or um, make you feel less, less safe. Uh, you get the support. So community access always mixes people with mental health concerns with people who live in the community, low-income families. So everybody gets social service support. A lot of people don't want to go see their counselors. That's okay too. You have a permanent lease in our housing. So that means pretty much you can't be kicked out. Some of the other tenants don't like that. But if you, you get into a crisis and you're screaming and you're banging on the ground with a pot, 
you're not going to lose your lease. Don't worry about it. You might really, really anger your neighbors, but you have a permanent lease, a rent-stabilized lease. And that's for our permanent housing. I, I just think that, you know, I've never been homeless. I've been like couch surfing, but never been homeless. But the people who tell me how they've been homeless, it's just very hard to get a job when you're homeless. It's very hard to stay stable, stable when you're homeless. It's very hard to feel safe when you're when you're homeless. And when you have a nice place to live and you do get into crisis, and this I know, you can just stay at home. If you need to take off two days and stay in your apartment because you're not feeling well, then you do that and you get better. So yes, housing is a big part of recovery. Thank you for sharing all this with us. I guess the last thing that I just wanted to ask is how can people get involved? So Community Access is uh, like a 40-year-old nonprofit that does mental health housing and employment training for people with psychiatric disabilities. Always a good place to contribute at communityaccess.org. You can get involved with police reform by joining ccitnyc.org, www.ccitnyc.org. Our website is in the process of being changed, but you can also tweet at us at ccitnyc. Thanks so much for all that. And thanks for joining us, Carla. It was really great conversation. You're a great interviewer. So Anjali, that conversation you just had with Carla was honestly like, I learned so much from it. And I'm so thankful that you were such a great interviewer. I don't know if you realize this, but Carla kind of touched up on it, but now we're finding out that we are getting some sort of reform in the, how mental health crises are tackled. And this is now we're going to, instead of having police officers, we're going to have EMS and a trained mental health care worker on the spot. I heard de Blasio just announced that news like the day after we talked with Carla. Yeah, but I feel like before have, uh, hearing your conversation, I would have felt happy about it. But now I'm honestly very conflicted because of what we learned, how this is just not going to be as helpful as if we had done fully just having a peer in there to de-escalate. And in fact, I don't know, do you think that this is a right step forward? Yeah, I mean, Carla very much was insisting in our conversation that having a peer is a core element of this, right? And this model that de Blasio has announced is really EMS and some other person trained in crisis intervention. And that doesn't put the people with lived experiences at the center of the response, right? So, I mean, I think we need to kind of question that. It's probably a good idea to take the calls away from the NYPD anyway, but I feel like, you know, it's not bringing resources to the community. It's not centering people with lived experiences. So there's a lot to be, to be asked for. What have you heard about how the police are thinking about this? I mean, we have a comment from Patrick Lynch saying how he's concerned for the safety of the people who are going to be responding to these calls because he just doesn't understand how the persons in mental health crises are going to respond. And it just speaks to me as a sort of misunderstanding of what it means to be in a mental health crisis that, or just didn't fully understand what it means to de-escalate a situation. Because if you're de-escalating incorrectly, you wouldn't be in any danger. I feel like maybe those crisis intervention trainings didn't work as well as they were supposed to. Well, that's exactly what Carla said, right? She said that these training, crisis intervention trainings for police don't work. In fact, they made the situation worse. And yeah, I mean, if New York policing unions are not really known to be 
really progressive. I think one thing that's like really important is that most of these calls, and we're talking about 170,000 calls in 2019 that are for people in crisis, the majority, vast, vast majority of these are not dangerous situations, right? And in the CAHOOTS model in Oregon, of 24,000 calls that happened last year, only 150 needed police backup, right? And there still wasn't violence that happened. So I feel like this anxiety that people have around people in crisis that the police have, but also that people, general people in society and healthcare workers have around people in crisis, that they're scary, that they're going to do something unexpected, that violence could happen randomly. That's just false. Yeah. And I could sort of understand the fear if you weren't trained. I I understand like a normal person who's never received any sort of training, who has never really experienced being in the situation could feel fear because it's certainly not something that you deal with every day. But for people who have like professional training, who have dealt with these situations, who have successful in these situations, I feel like they will respond very much differently than what Lynch did and how they feel fearful for their lives. One of the things that I'm thinking about, again, about the lack of insight that de Blasio and other people are having around like centering people with lived experiences. We can think about in what happened with Daniel Prude in Rochester, right? This was a man who knew he was in crisis. He went to the hospital and the hospital basically just discharged him. And community activists are asking, did Strong Memorial Hospital actually do right by him. And the problem is that can a medical provider alone really do right? Can they really design the right programs? Can they really think about what it would take? Because a couple hours later, he needs to call again for EMS and police show up and he ends up being murdered. I'm really thinking and questioning the role of healthcare workers in this violence, right? Are we not totally not responsible if we discharge someone out onto the street? And I'm not saying we shouldn't discharge someone. I'm not saying we should hold people against their will, but I am saying Are we not responsible if we don't have a really good plan for somebody and we just let them go out and they're still in crisis and the police get involved again? I think it also talks about how we deal with a lot of problems, not only with mental health, but with nutrition or other areas that directly impact with health that we think that health begins and ends with just the health visit. Meanwhile, like if there isn't a sort of like a community support or like a social group or like follow up is we're just part of like sort of a rinse and repeat, kind of like an endless cycle. And unfortunately for people with mental health conditions, this cycle is very dangerous for them. We see them being killed, but we also like, we're also some some part of like a medical incarceration complex where there's just not a good end in sight unless they receive the proper care. And it's not just us. I feel like we believe that being in the care of doctors, you feel like, oh, finally, they're going to get the help that they need. They're going to be cured. But we know that the cure doesn't really exist unless there's multiple follow-ups. And even like, can you really truly be cured and just say like, oh, finally, I guess I don't have this anymore. Totally. And I like, I like that a lot, that idea of there being this cycle, you know, you medicalize someone, you institutionalize someone. You don't actually set them up with community support and they end up, you know, maybe incarcerated for, for, for multiple reasons. I think that that reaction of like, oh, hospital is safe. Doctors are doing good. Thank God we're at the hospital now. It's kind of the same reaction that people used to have to police. Like, oh, great. I'm so glad the police are finally here. But when I, when I think about people that have been brought in in crisis to emergency rooms that I've been in, 
that is not a place of healing. That is a place of further trauma, right? You're, you're in the hospital, you're in crisis, there's police officers, there's like 20 doctors and nurses, they're trying to inject you with some drugs. You know, they're trying to restrain you to the bed. That is not a de-escalation <laughs> at all. And I think that's, that's a really big problem. And then the other thing is on the other side of that, when you're discharging someone, you're like, okay, we've injected this person with Haldol with an antipsychotic, so now he's calm, so we're gonna let him go out, right? That's, I mean, you're not sending anybody out into any kind of real support system that's gonna prevent them from being in crisis again once that sedating drug wears off. Once they're out of the door, they're no longer the hospital's problem, they're no longer the physician's problem. And if something happens afterwards, I'm sure no one really feels like they're at fault. Like no one really takes uh, responsibility for that feeling. And we kind of dump it all on the police because at the end of the day, yes, police were the ones who metaphorically pulled the trigger, but all of the events that led up to that situation, like we definitely, and by we, I mean, medical providers played a part in letting it get that far. Totally. I, I agree. And I think another thing that I'm thinking about is like when we engage in this way with the police in the emergency room for someone who's in crisis or otherwise, we lead to a breakdown of trust in the healthcare system, right? Like part of one of the things that Carla talks about is that people in crisis don't wanna go to the psychiatric emergency room because they're afraid of being institutionalized against their will, right? Like similarly, like people don't wanna come into the emergency room because when they were last there with the police, they were handcuffed to their bed. The police officer was sitting there while the doctor was telling them personal private health information. I think this is something I see all the time, this like weird alliance that happens sometimes in, in the hospital between the doctor and the police where, you know, information is shared inappropriately. Sometimes the police officers, even they'll come up to med students sometimes and they'll say like, hey, what was the Utox, right? And the med student who's feeling, you know, a little bit doesn't know the rules and also is feeling really, oh, maybe I could be helpful, you know, might share something. And I think that's not just true for med students, that's actually true for, for across the board for healthcare providers. They think that somehow that's an appropriate information to share with the police. It's actually a violation of HIPAA. And I think that's like something really important to keep in mind as a provider in the emergency room. If the police officer is there with someone who is arrested, you need to ask them to step away out of earshot because the whole police policy, and actually I can tell you what policy it is. It's PG 210-04. It's about prisoners requiring medical or psychiatric treatment. Their policies are to stay in the room unless you as a provider ask them to leave. Their policy is to stay within earshot and eyeshot otherwise. So you need, might need to tell them to leave the whole treatment area. And their policy is also to keep somebody restrained. But you as a provider are actually allowed to ask them to remove the handcuffs, right? And I think one of the things they're not allowed to deny that. You are allowed to examine your patient, you know, fully, including without any restraints on. I think those are just really important things. We don't, we're not, we don't teach this. We think somehow that the police are immune from HIPAA and from like, you know, patients' rights, and they're not. Yeah, or we see them as some sort of like help, which I feel is also very much damaging to the trust that you want to build with the patient because the patient already does not want to be there. And then if they see that you are aligning yourself with the police, you're completely destroying any sort of trust you could have built with a patient who's already in a very vulnerable position. You're describing them as being already handcuffed. You are in the position of power. Even if you feel like they could be a danger, it's actually the opposite. I feel like you're more of a danger to them with all the 
power that you have to strip them of their rights than they are to you. But I mean, isn't this asking a little bit too much from medical providers who can't even reconcile with their own profession, mental health? I think that's like, maybe this is kind of where it comes from. I think most healthcare providers are deeply uncomfortable with mental health issues, either in their patients and in themselves. I mean, and we see this repeatedly come up that physician suicide rates are so high. Med students and, and other healthcare providers are really vulnerable. We don't deal with trauma. And I mean, that's certainly coming out in COVID. People are, not, you know, have been through deep trauma and don't know how to handle it. I mean, obviously I haven't seen much. I'm still like, for anyone who doesn't know, like medical school, you start out first year and a half to two years just learning theory and then you go into the the hospital so i haven't seen much but we have gotten peer mental health which is something our school specifically is doing to address mental health but there is still a long way to go in addressing mental health in medical school and honestly i feel like it would be beneficial to our future patients if we get some sort of not only de-escalation training but also learning more about trauma-based, uh, uh, trauma-informed care. Like, because at the end of the day, if we don't know how to like treat ourselves and how to understand our own mental health, how can we do it with our patients? I totally agree. I think we don't build hospitals to be safe for people emotionally. And I think that part of that is that as providers, we're working these very long hours and we find it very, very hard to take seriously our own emotional well-being, let alone that of our patients. I have like struggled with depression before, and I feel this internal hesitation that like figuring out how to fully grapple with this as like a future doctor and this like embarrassment over feeling like sometimes I might not be able to work Right. And I think that's such a huge part of like the way that we're trained is this emphasis on work and there not being any respite from work. Right. And so if you're in crisis or you're like in partial crisis and you just can't work in this kind of really intense way, you kind of feel embarrassed for yourself. We don't know how to deal with ourselves in crisis. And so we don't know how to deal with our patients in crisis. I think it plays into the way that we interact with our patients because we're like, why can't you get it together? Like I get it together every day and I do all this work. And I think it's this really problematic way of framing our own care. And it very much leaks into the way we think about our patients. In fact, I was thinking about it the other day that the kind of training that we do receive before we start medical school, which I think everyone knows, like we get CPR training. I don't know how many medical students actually have done CPR on anyone. Meanwhile, I feel like we could have all benefited from de-escalation training. Just living in New York City, you have had some sort of brush with people in mental health crises. This is such a large city and it's such a big problem. If you receive one call every three minutes of a mental health crisis, you are going to experience it eventually just by living in the city. So I feel like definitely we're doing too little right now. And I hope that it doesn't become too late. Yeah, I think doctors and healthcare workers like silver bullet solutions to problems. And so we like the idea of a drug, right? We like the idea of 
a drug that's going to kind of sedate someone and calm someone down. We don't like the idea that we might have to actually spend time with someone talking to them, helping them calm down, right? We don't, I think exactly what you're saying. We need more trauma-informed care. We need de-escalation techniques. We need mental health first aid. And those things need to be deeply incorporated into the way we learn medicine. Anjali, I think that this is around good time to wind down and talk a little bit about what we would like to see in the future and a sort of like demands of what we want from education, our hospital, and just in general. So at least from education, I would like to see more de-escalation training, more mental health first aid, more trauma-informed care, more community models of mental health care. Right now in our psychiatric rotations, they're really focused on the inpatient experience. We don't really get much experience in the outpatient side, which is more realistic in a way. You won't see all your patients are not going to be inpatient. But that's something that we lack in our healthcare, I mean, our medical school education. And we would like to see more student wellness, uh, even though I don't have any complaints about how our school is tackling student wellness, just in general, like most medical schools can also focus more on it. In the hospital side of things, more trauma-informed care policies and organization in the hospitals, patient-centered security policies. We need to re-examine sedation and restraint procedures. We need also better discharge planning for patients with lived mental health conditions to avoid tragedies like Daniel Prude. We need more education for healthcare workers in de-escalation, and we need more healthcare worker wellness awareness. And just in general, as a society, we need more community-based mental health care organizations, peer-based de-escalation for people with mental health crises, anti-poverty initiatives, meaningful work opportunities for people living with a mental health condition. And we also want to open it up to the audience. What do you think? is helpful in reimagining a world where, first of all, mental health crises aren't deadly and also where people with mental health conditions can live normal lives. So thank you all for tuning in to our first episode. I hope you all learned a little bit more about mental health. Thank you.